This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Handsome by Handsome. Oh, this is a this is a this is a good looker. This is a Pat Turner. I like listening to the whole thing all the way through. Like it works as an album. But uh, you know, if this is in the ballpark of say a helmet, I like this a heck of a lot more than I like helmet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are in episode 107 of season three, and we have a requested review. Requested, requested review. review. This one comes to us from Mr. Eric Alexi, who also uh, requested some albums last year, but this year he plunked down some change and uh, sent us a name of a band that I was familiar with. I think you were too. They're called Handsome. And, handsome? Uh, he, hands, handsome. Not handsome. Oh, shit. I reviewed the wrong record. I reviewed oh, Handsome. Oh, damn it. What is the name of that record, by the way? Uh, <gasps> the Handsome the Handsome. Was it uh, something with nowhere in the title? I can't remember. That's no. that's neither here nor there, Jay, because Eric asked, asked us, he asked us to uh, check, to go back to this, what we call a one and done, this band. They put one album out, and they did it, they made it a self-titled album, which is, I think if you're going to be one and done, you should do self-titled. Don't even bother with the album title. It's just, we are handsome. I don't know if they are we're actually handsome, but they're saying we are handsome. This is our album. Deal with it. So we are going to deal with it. You were you were familiar with the record, correct? Uh, no, I was not familiar with the record. What? I, mean, I, was, I was I knew the band existed and maybe had heard something here or there, but I had not spent uh, any time with it. That's ridiculous. I thought you knew this record. I thought you were the one who showed me this album and was like. No, they check no, this no, no. out. Okay, so I heard this record like yeah. I remember when we started the show, uh, you brought it to the table somehow from somebody. Yeah, obviously just pushed it forward. But no, I wasn't familiar with it. Hmm, that's weird. So yeah, my history with it is sort of I, I gave it a cursory listen probably like ten years ago. Uh, I had always been a helmet fan, so uh, I was willing to try. You know anything that was semi-related to Helmet, and uh, I gave it a listen, and I it didn't really connect with me at the time, so I sort of put it away, and that's that CD was lost to the great CD purge of the early 2000s. So I never really listened to the album again, and then uh, it got suggested, and I found uh, a digital copy online, which was the 12-song album plus two bonus tracks. Which, uh, Jay, do you want to include those two bonus tracks in the discussion because they're basically the only two other songs that were recorded, or do you want to skip those and just go with the twelve songs? I'm going to ask this up front because usually we we realize halfway through the re- the recording of the episode that we reviewed the bonus tracks. <laughs> well, if somebody was to get the record now, would they get the bonus tracks or not? If they were to find it on certain websites and download it via. Let's call them file sharing yeah. services. It's not distributed anymore. No. But if they bought a used CD, you know, the original release, they won't have these tracks, correct? No. Uh, I happen to find them. There's a website called uh, Shiny Gray Monotone. They do a lot of music that's 
of this ilk and they posted the album for download and included the two extra tracks which represent the only one of the songs well here's the thing i guess there was a a, a, a digital component to the album you know when they would put like videos and bonus materials <laughs> oh and yeah one of the that. songs is a part of the digital content but is not a part of the actual album so technically it came with the album it just didn't wasn't they didn't consider it a part of the track list you had to put it in your cd rom yes yes uh, and perhaps yeah. there was a code were, that took you to a times. that took you to a website and you got to look at bonus materials <laughs> Because they couldn't just write the website on the uh, liner notes. Yeah. Oh. So I started doing interactive work around that time, so I remember it well. Yeah. So we're just we're just gonna go with the album. We're not gonna do we're gonna do the twelve songs of the album, and uh, we're not gonna include those two songs in the actual review. Uh, but you'll get the gist of them from our review, I, I would think. Now is the time that. We should probably get into, uh, what is it, Jay? History of the Band? Correct! History of the Band! Get so, good at this. Yeah, setting you up, teed it up, slam it in. Uh, Handsome formed in 1996 by former Helmet guitarist Peter, I'm going to mangle his last name, Mangetti. Uh, with Quicksand guitarist Tom Capone, Cro-Mags and Murphy's Law drummer Peter Hines, Eddie Nappy on bass, and Jeremy Chatelaine on vocals. They released one album. It was released in 1997 on Sony. Uh, they, were, they toured. They actually toured uh, part in the United States with Silverchair, and then in the UK with, I'm not kidding, Wu-Tang Clan. Prior to their last tour, Tom Capone left the band. He was replaced by Donnie Campion. The band broke up in 1998. Capone returned to Quicksand. Jeremy Chatelaine, Chatelaine uh, joined Jets to Brazil. Eddie Nappy joined the Mark Lanigan band and played on uh, the uh, played in a band called Enemy with Troy Van Leeuwen, who's in Failure as well as Sweethead with Van Leeuwen and former Plexi drummer Norm Block. And that is the history of Handsome. Small world. Yeah. So if you want to suggest a band for review, head on over to our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We list what has been requested this year. And how many re- uh, reviews we have left uh, for you to make your pick. So we got some feedback on Facebook. We also got an email from Eric. So I'm going to go with Eric's email first because he picked the record. So He said, uh, came across these guys on the epic 550 compilation Tonnage 2 alongside the likes of Four Squirrels, Corn, Shudder to Think, and Far sometime in 96-97. The helmet quicksand comparisons are spot on, but these guys are definitely more urgent sounding and accessible than both of these bands. I think that's interesting that he says both urgent, more urgent and more accessible. Uh, such a shame they don't, they just vanished. Can't think of any better one and done bands from the grunge era. 
than this one. Then we also got some Facebook feedback. Uh, quite a few, few, li few likes. Chip Midnight posted, I keep hoping for the day when somebody from the band mentions that they recorded a second album that never got released, but have decided the time is right to put it out there. I interviewed these guys when they opened for Corrosion of Conformity. Seems like a nice pairing. Uh, Jake King chimed in. Sonically, this album is one of my favorites of the 90s. The production work by Terry Date is top-notch. It's always a good thing to have Ted Jensen master your album. Friend of the show, Shawn Michael Foster, also chimed in. He said, Eddie Nappy, who's a bass player, is the bass player for both Enemy and Sweethead, which I mentioned. What else did he say? Oh, um, and then Chris Martz chimed in. I talked to Jeremy, the lead singer, way back on the first Jets to Brazil tour. Being as this was 15 years ago, my memory is a little, memory is a little spotty, but I do remember a few things. One, he said that every show on that first Jets to Brazil tour, that he'd meet somebody meet at least one crazy handsome fan and it blew his mind number two they did a they did record a second album but it wasn't finished the mix was bad or something and one of the other guys in the band didn't want to release it there are a couple of b-sides out there closer and spill which are the songs that we're talking about as far as the bonus tracks as well as uh swivel which is on a live bootleg that has been circulating on the net for years. And then lastly, Chris chimed in with also an interesting side note. Jeremy turned down a spot to be the lead singer of Texas is a Reason to join Handsome. Imagine how different that band would have sounded. So there is our feedback on Handsome, Jay. This is actually good because you're not as familiar with this record as I am, so you're going to start out and you're going to give us your opinion on handsome is this a is this a good looking album or is this an ugly duck thing how about that <laughs> there we go uh, what do you think ouch oh this is a this is a this is a good looker this is a head turner so there's a lot of things about this record that uh i think on the surface when you first listen to it it seems very familiar it, and i think it'd be pretty easy to write it off a lot of the songs start off with you know pretty stereotypical um you know, muted bar chord, drop tuning, sort of guitar riffs. Um, and then, but then they break into, or I think things get interesting, is, um, you know, these bigger, fuller, lusher chords, and that, that's matched with um, a vocal that is not necessarily what you would expect in terms of music this heavy. It's just, it's a real honest sort of, um, you know, straightforward delivery, almost, uh, I'd say his singing voice is probably similar to his speaking voice, but it delivers a melody and it fits really nice. You know, it's a little bit higher pitch and it fits really nice above this just, you know, huge wall of guitars that really is what the album is all about. So you got this really nice interplay between, you know, this, this vocal that's pretty melodic, but, you know, pretty straightforward. And then this uh, this wall of guitars um, that is alternating between you know these sort of heavy, very um, you know dark minor sounding riffs, and then cutting from that into these really cool chord progressions that are you know much fuller, much I don't know if I should say shoegaze or, or more along the lines of like a failure or you know something maybe that's a little bit more progressive almost 
mm-hmm. uh, not not in terms of you know the, the the complexity of it, but just the, the lushness of it. Um, and then you know you you got these drums that are you know, borderline. Um, I would describe them as kind of almost post-hardcore, but a lot more uh, straightforward, but with some nice accents. Uh, and for the most part, you know, the record sticks to a, a pretty solid formula, I think, in terms of, you know, most of the songs were uh, a similar tempo and um, similar intensity. There's a couple points, though, where, where um, I, I think it's Quiet Liar, where things particularly towards the end of the record, sort of shift and you start to see a whole new sh- you know, um, side of this band that really becomes interesting when you when you kind of consider the whole thing together. So, you know, I, I, I thought the record was really good. Um, the more time I'm spending with it, the more and more I, I appreciate it. And, and I sort of pick up, you know, little details here and there that I really like. Um, you know, the melodies become more accessible the more you listen to it, too which is nice. But, uh, you know, if this is in the ballpark of, say, a helmet, I like this a heck of a lot more than I like helmet. And I know you're a Ooh. helmet fan, so I'd like to dig into that with you a little bit to hear what your reaction to that that thought. That's that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I picked this up or heard about it because of the fact that there was the helmet connection. And... I don't. This didn't connect with me at the time, and I think the the thing that didn't connect with me was the vocal, because he's not doing the aggressive right. vocal that I was used to, and I realize now that he is sort of the, he sort of became what everybody started doing with, I would I guess you'd say, uh, post hardcore, you know, hard these like angular guitars and and textures and rhythms you know if you think about like say the the cave-in record jupiter those vocals they went from being a hardcore band with like screaming to a vocal that's much more closer to this where it has almost an i don't want to say emo but it's a much more emotive vocal as opposed to just screaming over anything and i don't think he i don't really think he ever really screams on this record there are times when his vocals are distorted but he's never like howling or, or screaming the way that you think of with, say, a, a, a helmet or a quicksand, which are the two, you know, bands that are most likely to be lumped in with Handsome. It's it's an interesting combination because when you listen to the music, it's, I don't want to use the word brittle, but the the guitars, I, I, it, they're really unique sounding. Mm-hmm. They have a... a like you said, there's almost like in some parts of it, like a shoegaze sound to what's going on, even though it's clearly much more aggressive, much more in your face than shoegaze is. Where I think of shoegaze is more like a wall of sound. It's got that. It's like you said, they're using certain chord fingerings and 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 progressions that give you that sort of feel, but. It almost has an industrial sound with the guitars. Like it almost sounds like Ministry at times, or um, you know, one of those sorts of bands. Uh, the thing that really is cool that they do really well that I appreciate now is they sort of take little bits and pieces of what I would call sort of like stock metal riffs. Uh, Going to Panic is is a good example. Um, it's got that like descending drop D riff that like every metal or hard core band plays at do 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 you know where it's like a descending like three or four note 
uh, riff, but they sandwich it between really cool other parts mm-hmm. so that it doesn't it doesn't they don't sound like they're just recycling. Sounds like they're staying within the genre, but still kind of twisting it. And I, the, the one time that really I think is shows what this band is all about is track two, because it shifts its tempo like three times. It starts out like a mid tempo, and then it goes to double time, and then it goes to half time, and it's seamless. You know, a lot of bands struggle with how do you change things up, but not do it so that it's uh, blatant. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and jarring. Yeah, and jarring. They do it right. I mean, they hit every note, you know, and every change exactly where they're supposed to, so that it sounds like it's completely organic and completely fluid. The other song that I wanted to bring up is Lead Bellied. Mm-hmm. It has like, you know, there's a thing in, in rock songs where, especially in older rock songs, where they'll sort of write a bridge and there'll be like a guitar riff and then there'll be a pause 
and like the guitar player will take a little like you know one bar solo and then they'll play the same guitar riff and the bass player would take a little solo and then they'll take a you know the they'll play the same riff over and over again and mm-hmm. each instrument will sort of take the little solo they almost do that in lead belly mm-hmm. in the verses where the first time they do it they play a guitar riff that i do not understand what the guitar is doing it's like it sounds like a computer is being played it's like uh, uh, uh. it's such a cool guitar riff and then they reprise it as a chord progression in the vert or in the chorus but after each in in um in the verse every time they play the chord progression they end it in a different way one time it's the guitar the crazy computer guitar riff then there's like a drum part it's it's a really cool song it really shows off just a more studied uh approach to songwriting than simply just playing four chords and blasting through them they're actually you know putting in these little parts that are showing off each instrument bad because from what i read basically sony screwed up the release and and it was 97 and they didn't know how to market this band and that the guys in the band got really upset because they had been you know putting this together and i think from what i read eddie nappy is like responsible for writing a lot of the music and i i don't want to be i don't want to this would be a great opportunity to have somebody on the show but i wasn't able to contact anybody um i think that like it was basically the parts of the band were put together as they were getting the deal and they were thinking you know this was going to be this was like they're going to take that quicksand and helmet that had sort of been underground and, and add a vocal that was a little bit more melodic and then mm-hmm. it was going to sort of take off for them and it did gotcha. and it was it kind of wrecked you know everything and they blew up before they could even finish the second record so yeah. yeah, I mean, you uh, you touched on Lead Belly. That's one of my favorite songs on the album. What's amazing is it's only two minutes and 47 seconds. Yeah. And there is so much cool stuff jammed into that song. I noticed that that exchange that happens, too. And the thing that, that I love about that, and maybe this is a musician thing, I, I don't know, but uh, that song does something that this genre that I love about uh, sort of post-hardcore and sort of a 90s, uh, you know, sort of metal influenced, uh, you know, heavy rock. There's this sort of you do a patterning where you have these accents or licks or whatever you want to call them, but these little moments that happen, but you pattern them in a way that some ways it's, you can, you know, it becomes a little bit predictable, like you can anticipate it, but you're not quite sure if it's going to happen. 
and they kind of do that in the song where like you were saying like you know they they play the riff and then there's a space and they'll do like a drum fill and then they play the riff and there's a space and then they'll do this awesome guitar just you know kind of riff part yeah. and, and then they'll you know play the riff and then they don't do any of that they play a second part of the riff and then they'll do it again and then the guitar part comes and sort of like trying to like anticipate when those cool parts are going to happen and just the feeling of like you get in that rhythm of like oh this is where something cool is going to happen and then you know something completely unexpected you know comes comes around and mm-hmm. sort of blows your mind um in terms of you know they playing with timing or playing with some cool like sound they can make on a guitar that you wouldn't expect they could do or just some crazy drum fill or you know what whatever it might be but um this song i think is a great example of that where you can kind of just play along in your mind and you're just continually surprised and delighted as that you know the, the song unfolds and it also shows you know i think the best parts of this record show their ability like you said to be able to shift shift time in a way that is not jarring is not it doesn't feel pro- overly progressive or overly forced um and also shift from you know light to dark both using sort of intensity but also using you know chords which is great you know going from really evil sounding um you know almost sabbath sounding chords to stuff that's you know maybe it's got delay on it and a lot more lush sounding and more major um and being able to shift back and forth between those two different moods and feels uh, that's what to me makes this album very unique amongst you know, a lot of other bands that are sort of in the same ballpark. And I'm I'm jealous of artists and musicians that can so effortlessly make those transitions between a halftime and a double time and a regular time, because that's really hard to do without making it sound contrived. Uh, having written, you know, a number of songs, both alone and then in bands, it's just, it just does not... Um, you know, I think it's something that comes with an understanding of the genre and having and playing within the genre, which lends itself to lots of changes. You know, just songwriting chops. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's just, it's a hard thing to do well, and they do it over and over and over again, which is just, it's impressive. And, you know, I'm wondering, when we talked about you know, this this is a band that suffered a little bit from mismanagement by uh, Sony. I read, I, I mentioned their first, their big tour in the United States was opening for Silverchair, which that seems to me like a really bad idea because Silverchair was essentially the teenage version of Nirvana. So uh, I gotta, I gotta admit, track. I know we're not reviewing this song, but track fourteen, one of my notes, I wrote in. The couple moments in those verses where it verges on Silverchair sounding. I had Whoa. no idea they toured with them, but I have it in my notes. Interesting. Well, yeah, they, it was Silverchair and, and Local H was the tour. Uh, then they were then they toured with Less Than Jake and the Descendants, which again does not seem like a, the best pairing. Yeah. Uh, and they went to Europe, and it was the it was Wu Tang Clan and the Voodoo Glow, Glow Skulls. Okay. Yeah. So you got you got some variety. Supposed to be a theme we're finding that um one of the one of the factors in the success of these bands is who they got toured who they toured with who they got partnered with. Yeah, uh, a lot of times it's tragically awful. Like 
just the pairings or the, the lack of, I don't know, effort by their booking and management. It's pathetic. Fans were just basically left left out to dry. So in terms of, you know, this, this was a band, I, I hesitate to call them a super group because none of the bands that they were in were like, the, the Helmet was probably the biggest band because they had one or two videos on MTV. Quicksand had some airplay. But this isn't like Temple of the Dog with Chris Cornell and, you know, Eddie Vedder and that sort of thing. But in terms of them having a radio single to push, uh, I, I think that Dim the Lights was probably the best option. Do you, do you think that there was a better song that they could have gone with as far as a oh. single? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I, I, that's a probably the... I guess it's the most straightforward song, but it's also yeah. doesn't sh- to me it doesn't show off what makes the band great. I struggle with that song a little bit. It's far away from some of the other material on here. It's still, I don't know, it still has that lushness and still has those some of those dynamics. They're just slower. Even a song like that, even though I guess you wouldn't need with a ballad. You know, Needles has some moments in it. There's, you know, that chorus, sort of a chorus part that's kind of it's kind of catchy that I found myself, you know, singing in my head a little bit. Um, circle inside a circle, wheel. What is it? Wheel inside a wheel or something. Mm-hmm. The line in that song, I found myself repeating that. Yeah, that distorted vocal bridge. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, I like how clear his vocal is. You can pretty much make out the lyrics to just about every song, which is not not the typical uh, vocal style of a, of a singer in this type of band. There's, it tends it tends to be uh, a little bit more, more um, aggressive, which sometimes makes it harder to understand. Yeah. But I was able to pick They're up on a better lot song. of this stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to say because you know I don't li- I don't listen to the record and say, oh wow, that was a radio hit there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think this band should have had a better career than they had. You know, I think they should have had at least as I don't know they should at least be as well known as say like a failure or something. I mean, even though they're not huge either, but I you know I would uh, hazard a guess and say a failure is better known than handsome. Um, Probably. You know, but they should at least had some sort of 
ability to continue and make records and sort of be a mid-level, you know, like uh, say Caven, right? I mean, Caven never had any hits either. No, but they're still making records. Um, you know, they, they've they developed enough of a following that you know they can probably go around and tour and, um, you know, and make a couple bucks and make it worth worth their while to do. It seems like you know it's too bad that this band um, couldn't have at least you know continued that way. I don't necessarily hear. I think I don't hear an obvious radio hit. I think if some of these songs had been given a little bit of time and had you know just been some commitment behind them, maybe like a song like "Left of Heaven" or uh, something like that, you know, maybe, but uh, nothing obvious. And basically, when the band broke up, the guy who founded it, Peter Mangetti, uh, I think that's how you say it. He, he basically quit music at that point. Like he never recorded anything else. Mm. So I think I think the experience of having left Helmet to do this. Um, I think he's Australian. If I'm not mistaken. Hmm. I might be wrong about that, but I think so. But yeah, I mean, because he played on, you know, he played in on their basically everything up to the Meantime album, and then. I don't. I think he was. He played on some of the follow-up album, but not the whole thing. Because it only shows him credit is for Wilma's Rainbow, which is one song, the uh, on Betty. And then after Helmet, or I mean, sorry, after Handsome, there's there's nothing left on his on his uh, discography. There's just the Best of Helmet, which was a compilation that came out in 2004. So he was basically done. What What did you think of the uh, uh, the production of this record? Uh, it really grew on me in terms of I liked how it's a little bit more uh, like I mentioned. There's a little like and you mentioned too. There's a little bit of a of a shoegaze aspect to some of the guitars. They're a little bit bigger than just you know your typical hardcore sound. I don't know what effects they're using, but there definitely seems to be something more than just the basics going on. Um, I think the bass sounds really awesome. On a lot of these songs, uh, like track three, "Going to Panic," it has that like cashmere kind of drum beat, and the bass line is moving along with that, and it sounds really good. Um, and anytime the bass pops out, it just it always sounds like mean, like it's grinding. Yeah. In terms of this type of band and this type of music, I think it sounds great. You know, I don't think it would work for, you know, Katy Perry, but. It, it definitely works for me. And it it's a kind of album where I like listening to the whole thing all the way through. Like, it works as an album. Yeah, you can pick some songs out here and there to listen to, but, like, there's really not a dull no, a, a bad note on the record. Not to say that every song is, like, the most exciting song ever, but, man, it's, it's hard to find anything wrong with any of the songs. I don't know, what, what was your opinion, like, in terms of the production stuff? Uh, yeah, I'd agree. It's, um, you know, records like this where everything is, um, let's say, you know, on 11, pretty much from the time you hit play till the time it ends, uh, they can kind of get grating on you. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, somehow this record manages to not do that. I'm not quite sure how they pull it off. I think there's enough, I think there's probably just enough um, uh, tone here to it doesn't get overly harsh at any point which is good um i think the vocal helps 
you know, the fact that he doesn't scream because um, there's enough going on as it is uh, you would need that the thing about the production is that the um, the compression is a little severe so when I listen to the headphones I didn't notice but when I listen to it in the car you know, when, when the riffs start off and it's sort of just you know just the guitar by itself it sounds huge but what ends up happening is um, a song like My Mind's Eye which kind of builds into this big crescendo of, of intensity and volume and different you know frequencies and guitars and all this stuff going on um that compression actually instead of it kind of you know crunches it down so instead mm-hmm. of that part being like really loud it's actually seems less loud than the intro does <laughs> so i think that's one of the things that you battle with when you're producing a record like this how you manage all that and, um, that's one of the things that i noticed at least in the car that was a little bit of a disappointment but other than that um you know there's a lot of records that are in this genre that don't sound half as good so that's interesting i didn't pick up on that compression stuff but that, i pretty much listened to it exclusively in headphones so it might have yeah. been why i noticed it more in my car i don't know why but so in terms of a rating i think we're both at a uh, a worthy album rather than an ep or a single is that safe to say yeah, there's there's not really anything on this on this record I don't like. Yeah, I'm with you there. Pretty much can listen to the whole thing straight through, and it's not a long record. I mean, it's 12 songs, but it's not like there's any like seven or eight minute long songs in this record. They're all pretty compact. Like you mentioned, like Lead Belly is under three minutes, and it's pretty epic for being under three minutes. And you know, I think this is going to appeal to people who are already familiar with bands like we already mentioned Helmet, Quicksand, Failure, Cave In. Those sorts of bands. This is if you if this is not on your radar, you need to get it on your radar because this slides in perfectly with those sorts of bands. Can you think of any other ones that work? Uh, Deftones was one that came to mind. Oh yeah. You know, I even thought of I don't know if you've ever heard Switchfoot, but they kind of do a. There's a band that's taken sort of the alternative metal sort of post-hardcore thing and amalgamated it into something that's super accessible it's probably them so there's even some moments in this record where you know it borders not i've never heard switchfoot gonna be honest i think they're one of those bands that they have like albums and songs that are super heavy and then they have other songs that are just you know total radio rock stuff but um, katie chimed in that she had heard switchfoot without i think this is what that's probably what this band was um you know, when they got their deal and talked and talked about what they were trying to do, that's probably where they were trying to go with it. But I think it was, just, you know, in their nature to not be that, uh, you know, to be more adventurous than that and be more creative than that. Right. Well, we hope that you, our listeners, are going to be adventurous and seek out this record because it's a good one. And we need to thank Eric Alexi for suggesting it, requesting it, making it happen. This was one... That, yeah, going back to probably the first season, this was on our radar of possibly getting to at some point. So I'm glad it got pushed to the head of the, to the front of the line by Eric because uh, it's definitely one that might be revisited during our year-end wrap-up. There's a very good chance of that at the end of the year. I'm not going to say it's an absolute. We have a lot of records still to go, but this is definitely a contender for one of our best albums that we're going to be reviewing. So... Get those requests in and try to knock Eric off. The, off yeah. The Eric's Eric's got the uh, tentative lead, folks, he's, for album of the year. He's the king of 2013 so far. 
So you can head on over to request a review uh, at our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're your Dig Me Out hosts. We want to thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.